I've observed that our sound team is particularly on point through this Genesis series. I've labored hard to come up with creative introductions to introduce to you the characters, only to find them on the screen behind me as I ascend the steps. So thank you for the slide. But let me begin anyway with this jack-of-all-trades. It is a jack-of-all-trades that we will visit this morning. We will meet a man who is a shepherd, a man who is a slave, a servant, a man who is an estate manager. We will meet a man who's a convict, yet a prison warden, a portfolio manager, financial investor, family counselor, second to a king. This morning, we meet a man named Joseph. And through him, we will see two displays of the infinite wisdom of God. Now, this wisdom of God is divine. The wisdom of God is perfect. We say that God is all-wise. There's no Bible verse in the Scriptures that state that. Yet, when we look at the whole of the Bible, we learn that God is indeed all-wise. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. And Paul exclaims at the end of Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. So knowing then that God is the source of wisdom, as a result... James chapter 1, verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, Google it. No. (laughs) Let him ask of God. Why? Because God is all wise. God possesses all wisdom. And God is both all wise as well as all-knowing. Now, these two attributes of God are are similar, yet they're different. Wisdom is going to go beyond the facts. Wisdom goes beyond the data. Wisdom goes beyond just knowledge. You see, wisdom is having that knowledge and knowing how to rightfully use it. As human beings, for example, you and I might acquire knowledge by reading but wisdom through experience, by taking what we've learned and applying it. Someone has once said that knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit, and wisdom is knowing not to put it in fruit salad. God's wisdom is perfect, that that he knows all things, and he knows exactly how to orchestrate them, to bring about his sovereign will. Now, you and I have access to God's wisdom. You and I can come through Christ to God and ask for it. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. You see, God alone holds all wisdom. And in that verse... We're invited, technically we're commanded, 
to receive, to come to God asking. Because we want to know God's will. And we want to make good decisions. Most of all, as believers, we want to please God. Well, well, God's wisdom grants that. God's wisdom grants all of that. And this morning we go to Genesis chapter 37 to see this infinite display of God's wisdom. Well, Joseph is our, our final major figure in our summer series. We've worked our way through Genesis, learning about God through the major figures of the book. And we find even now, in these later chapters, God continues to preserve his people. He keeps his promises. The promises that he's made to Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. It now comes down to Joseph. However, as we approach the final chapters, drought threatens the promise of land. Murder threatens the promise of seed. And sin threatens the promise of blessing. But in all of this, God remains faithful. And in his wisdom, he upholds his promises and he accomplishes his word. Well, I want to begin in Genesis chapter 37. And I want you to see first God's wisdom in tribulation. God's wisdom in tribulation. Expelled from home, Joseph enters a strange land. The first few verses explain why. Verse 2, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him. They could not speak to him on friendly terms. Snitching, and favoritism, and envy. These are not keys to building a healthy family. Now, to be fair, we don't know the motive for the bad report we read about. We don't know its content. But we do note that Joseph did not bring back a bad report about his full brother, Benjamin. He's going to report on other brothers, his half-brothers, the brothers of Bilhah and Zilpah. All the way back a few chapters ago, I should say, Joseph and Benjamin were born to Rachel. They were both full brothers. And we see a favoritism in these verses. You could literally see it every time Joseph entered the room. He wore this very colored tunic. A better translation would be a full length or literally a sole of the foot tunic. The description that it's multicolored is debated. That may have got inserted at some point along the line. The emphasis here is on the length of the tunic. And note this, because we'll need to see it later. Royalty wore long tunics. In 1 Samuel, it's the clothing of princes. The common laborer, his tunic did not descend quite as far as the one Joseph wore. And worst of all, Dad made it for him. 
from the perspective of his brothers, it's like wearing a t-shirt that reads, I'm number one. Now this bred jealousy. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and they hated him. He could not speak to him on friendly terms. That could very well speak of the brother's attitude toward the father or Jacob. So does Joseph smooth things over? He's going to dream two dreams. No issue there. But he then shares them and interprets them. Maybe somewhat naively. Dream number one, there's bundles of grain standing in a field. Each of these bundles represented a brother. Ten bundles then bow down before one of them, ten brothers before Joseph. Verse 8, the brothers fumed. They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And in the second dream, the sun, moon, and the stars, they all bow down to him. Again, with the royalty, more exultation. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. This is a simmering pot. This is a simmering pot set on medium high. And seemingly unaware of these problems, Jacob sends Joseph off. He's gone to check on the brothers as they shepherd sheep. They're about 50 miles away up the road, verse 18, when the brothers saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. That tunic is a giant red bullseye. And the plot grew darker as Joseph approached. And in verse 19, they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dream. There will be no fulfillment of this dreamer's dreams. We'll see to that. We'll ditch his corpse in a pit. Verse 21, but Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him. Hear this, that Reuben might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Now, Reuben is the oldest of these 12 brothers, but he's not the wisest. Back in Genesis 35, he committed incest with his father's concubine. So is he now acting out of good conscience, or is he trying to get into dad's good grace? Verse 23, it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the varied color tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. And as they then dined, traitors appear. These guys are off to sell goods to Egypt. For 20 shekels of silver, one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, increases their cargo. They sell Joseph off to these traders. They sell him off as a slave 
never to see that smug face again. And they took his tunic, that beautiful, ugly coat, and they slaughtered a goat, (laughs) putting a knife in that never felt so good. And they splattered blood on that tunic, and they sent it off to their father, almost innocently. We found this. Examine to see if it's your son's tunic. And horrified, remember, Joseph is Jacob's favorite. The father's devastated. He cannot be consoled. And meanwhile, the Midianites, the traders who bought Joseph, sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. While one man mourns his loss, 400 miles away, another celebrates his gain. This is the wisdom of God. A God who alone possesses all knowledge. And he is a God who knows how to work together all things exactly to bring about his sovereign plan. Now, it may not seem like the best way. We might have asked Joseph. Not quite sure what he would have yelled up to us from the pit. Or what he would have replied bumping along on that camel down to Egypt. But even when the trial is dark, and even if you've been betrayed, and even if you've lost the one you love the most, and you thirst and freeze in the pits of life. And as you reflect upon the events, coming to that realization that life will never be the same again, that there is a change that's happened in the most fundamental of ways, even when it ends badly, God's wisdom abides. God knows how to take any of that and all of that and work it together for his own sovereign purposes. Later in the Bible, Paul will write that even all of these things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those called according to God's purpose. Now, the trial for Joseph does not end. But then again, neither does God's wisdom. In Genesis chapter 39, God tests Joseph in Egypt. Now, we're going to skip Genesis 38. We covered that chapter last Sunday. If you can recall the bulk of the contents, you're probably happy to do that. That was a story from the life of Judah. And we saw what happens with Canaanite culture when the Israelites come in contact with the Canaanites. The Israelites were, 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 were growing as God's promised people, but they were doing it right off the doorstep of pagan society. It's an indicator of what might happen to Israel if she continued to grow in this land of Canaan. Well, chapter 39 then continues Joseph's story. And God, in his wisdom, is, is working out his plan to grow his people. Verse 1 Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph 
So he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now remember, Joseph is is grappling with the biggest trial of his lifetime. But God brought along the right merchants. And God delivered to the right location. And God put him in the right household. And God delivered to the right nation. In his infinite wisdom, God will grow his nation. And he'll grow his man. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. This is going to be a recurring theme in your life as well. Verse 3, the Lord was with him. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord was with him. At no time when God delivers you into strange seasons and when God delivers you into strange places, when the vice tightens, at no time does your infinitely wise father abandon you. He led Jesus into the wilderness, and he led him out of the wilderness, and he never left him. Hebrews 13, verse 5, he himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I desert you. And the education in this classroom continues for Joseph. Now, in verse 2, you learn that it is God who is solely responsible for Joseph's success. He's occupying the role of a servant or the role of a slave. But whatever he's doing, he's getting his master's attention. Verse 3 speaks of Joseph's prosperity. He was quite possibly making Potiphar wealthy. This is good. Egypt isn't so bad. Joseph gets a promotion. He's the overseer of all that Potiphar owned. That's covered parking and a corner office. Thus, the Lord's blessing was on all that he owned. And Joseph lives the good life. He has the favor of God and the favor of Potiphar and the favor of one unnamed. Verse 6. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house and he has put all things he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. It's been observed that Potiphar's wife does more looking than talking. When she does in verse 7, Lie with me. And Joseph refuses for at least three reasons. First, Potiphar trusts him. He's been given a stewardship. 
He's overseer of all that Potiphar owns. And secondly, he'd be sinning against Potiphar. I mean, you're going to notice as you read the Bible, there, there are certain attributes of God that you can imitate, and there's some of those that you cannot imitate. Uh, for example, God is omnipresent. He is, he is present everywhere all at one time. You and I cannot imitate that. But wisdom, we can gain wisdom. We can exercise wisdom. And Joseph has it. One commentator, Victor Hamilton, observed that when scriptural wisdom speaks specifically of adultery, it doesn't speak about disobeying God, but speaks instead of the consequences. Proverbs 6, what happens to the adulterer? He must repay sevenfold. It's revenge, even financial costs. He who would destroy himself does it. It brings about a personal ruin. A loss of respect, a public disgrace, an angry husband seeking vengeance. Joseph possesses the wisdom of God. And he understands consequences. And the last reason he refuses such a good verse for us. Joseph's question, how then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, sin damages our relationship with God. And that relationship with God, when we invest in it, it's going it's to change our hearts. Hopefully, Lord willing, over time, we're, we're, we're hating sin and we're loving holiness. But Potiphar's wife will not be refused. In verse 10, she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her to be with her. He probably had to live in the same house as this walking temptation. But he wouldn't even be around her. That probably means he wouldn't be alone in a room with her. But it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work. And none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me! And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. She took that garment and she spread word amongst the other household staff, My husband bought this dirty Hebrew and look what he tried to do to me. And she kept that garment because she did the same thing when her husband Potiphar arrived home. And in verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But what do we know about God? What have we read so far? The Lord was with Joseph. God, in his wisdom, he has Joseph right where he needs to be. And this time, the chief jailer notices, and the trial, in contrast to chapter 37, here it's ending on quite an upswing. So which is the wisdom of God? Is it the wisdom at the end of chapter 37 as Joseph exits Israel on a camel? Is it the wisdom of God to be sold into servitude, or is it the wisdom of God to be promoted to prosperity? The answer is both. Job asked, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? You see, I think the tendency is to view the sunshine and to view the summer and the friends and the comforts. I see the wisdom of God working in my life. 
But God's wisdom works in the darkness and in the winter and in discomfort and through our enemies. God's wisdom works in tribulation. James chapter 1, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What, James? Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, in God's infinite wisdom, He's using trials to strengthen our faith. He's using trials to prepare us. Someone once said that Joseph, in this account, had to be master over his own body if he's going to be master over a people. God was testing Joseph. God was maturing Joseph. And God was doing it in tribulation. Oftentimes, we may not understand the point of the trial. Why God would be doing this. Why we're experiencing this or going through something. All we can feel is pain or grief. But if any of you lacks wisdom, the next verse, right after the trial, in James chapter 1 is the wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. God's wisdom belongs to you in your trial. We may not understand the trial, but we'll be able to endure it. We can know some reasons for it, perhaps. We can see God's presence in it. You see, for Joseph, God is strengthening him, and he's maturing him, and it's happening through a series of trials, tests to prove his faith. There's another aspect of God's wisdom I want you to see in the life of Joseph. I want you to see God's revelation. Genesis chapter 40, God's wisdom in revelation. We saw his wisdom in tribulation. Now we'll see his wisdom in revelation. God has given his wisdom in many different ways, in many forms throughout the years. You and I have it in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have it in the word of God. But not Joseph. Joseph had no Bible. But yet, he heard from God. God spoke to Joseph through dreams. And God used dreams as an important means of revelation. For Joseph, with the dream came interpretation. Joseph could even interpret other dreams that he himself had not dreamt. But the point here is God. That in his wisdom, he gives Joseph dreams to enact his plans. Now, we already saw this twice. Remember what got Joseph in all the trouble with his brothers. He dreamt two dreams. The dreams in this account seemed to come in pairs. He may not have handled his dreams in the best way, but again, the problem isn't, uh, isn't the dreams. The problem is the dreamer. In Genesis chapter 40, Joseph is going to interpret dreams. He meets two government employees in prison. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. It came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. 
So he put him in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. Now, just what these kitchen workers did is unclear, but we see that they land in the same jail where Joseph was. At the end of chapter 39, verse 22, God had blessed Joseph to oversee the prisoners in this jail. Now, none of this is a coincidence. There's, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Somewhere along the line, I got a gift up in my office. There are two dice. On each side of these six-sided dice is the word God. Every time you roll the dice, it's always God. No coincidence. A very helpful tool in ministry. So it was for Joseph. In verse 5, that the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night. Each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came into them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why, why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, we've had a dream and there's no one to interpret it. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. I think verse 8 is the most interesting in this passage. It's almost as though these two officials assume they can know the dream's meaning. I mean, isn't that interesting? We, we don't necessarily live that way today. But I do believe that God was communicating through dreams in, in powerful ways throughout eras of history. And these two men, they, they don't understand the dream, and this is very upsetting to them. The, the Bible says they're dejected. I mean, you've encountered people like this, right? You can look at their face and you understand their emotional state. And Joseph, I mean, this guy's a veteran servant in the ancient Near East. He got good at this. He could read faces. He had to know his master's face to serve him well. Well, he wasn't too bad at interpreting dreams either. God had given him this gift. It's going to be good news for one of the guys, but bad news for the other. The cupbearer had dreamt of a vine with three branches of ripe grapes. He squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup. In verse 13, Joseph speaks, Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift your head up and restore you. I bet the baker was beaming. What a great report. Joseph, tell me my dream. Well, he dreamt of three baskets of bread. They were carried on his head. They're meant for Pharaoh, but birds came and ate of them. In verse 19, Joseph speaks again. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. The NIV version says, will lift off your head. Remember, all this happens in the context of this prison. And Joseph is enjoying some level of trust. Enough trust to be in charge over prisoners. God's given Joseph a gift. But at the end of this, jail's still jail, isn't it? I mean, to be able to get out would be a pretty good deal. Joseph, after all, is not trying to retire here. In four ways, he's going to plead with the cupbearer. Remember, he's predicted that he's going to get out of jail in three days. Verse 14, keep me in mind 
do me a kindness. Mention me. Get me out of this prison. Three days later, as predicted, it was Pharaoh's birthday. The cupbearer gets restored. The baker's executed. Final verse of chapter 40, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Is God wise? His wisdom uses the best possible means to accomplish his perfect purposes. And two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. The word pharaoh is just another word for king. Egypt had a number of pharaohs. We keep seeing them pop up just as the word pharaoh. It'd be a different pharaoh that Joseph knew than Moses knew, for example. But this dream that Pharaoh had troubled him. In 41, verse 8, that's chapter 41, verse 8, he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Apparently, he had his own council of dream interpreters, yet none could interpret the dream. But of all the people standing in the room, who overheard it? The chief cupbearer. And he remembered two years ago some Hebrew youth. And in verse 15, Pharaoh calls for Joseph and he says to him, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph then answered, Pharaoh, it is not in me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. God will reveal his will through Joseph. And Pharaoh dreamt two dreams. In one, seven ugly cows ate seven healthy cows. That's right, you're not the only one who dreams weird dreams. In another one, seven blighted crops swallowed seven healthy crops. And in verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. Joseph knew right away what they meant. And God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. This revelation of God, it came instantly. And in the next few verses, Joseph will explain a harvest. For seven years, there will be an abundance of harvest in the land. But following that, for seven more years, it will be famine. And not only is Joseph accurate, but he's also very helpful. He even tells Pharaoh how to prepare for all of this. Well, Joseph would not return to jail. And instead of prison, he receives a pardon. And in verse 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. It's been 13 years since we began our message this morning. It's been six dreams and two pits and one infinitely wise God. God used dreams to direct his people and to give them revelation. And we saw this in the life of Joseph. Indeed, you can read the Old Testament and see how God did the same there. You can even read into the New Testament. Jesus' father, Joseph, dreamt dreams. Pilate's wife dreamt dreams. In fact, it was more of a nightmare than it was a dream. 
But you need to know that God's revelation does not lie in dreams alone. God has spoken to us in his word. And the Bible says that all the scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that you and I, men and women of God, we, be, we may be ad- adequate and equipped for every good work. That's the promise of God through his spoken word, the recorded word, the Bible. And God gave Joseph dreams. God gave you and I the Bible. He used dreams to guide Joseph into all wisdom, and he uses the Bible to guide you and I into all wisdom. It's God's communication to us in our tribulations, reading and studying and memorizing, regularly, thoughtfully, prayerfully taking God's Word and soaking it in. You see, our knowledge of the Bible, however, is not going to necessarily eliminate our trials. It may not even soften their blows, but it does give us the footing that we need when storms come. Certainly in the darkness, we should call out for wisdom. Absolutely, we should pray to God in the midst of trial. But I would contend that we need the Word of God now, before the clouds darken. I think to have God's Word and not use it is to be like a ship captain and not understand the lifeboats. I mean, the storm is not the time to figure it out. The captain's going to do his best, but boy, if he's prepared, it changes everything. The same is true for you and I. The trials will come, and God is wise. We can seek his wisdom in his word. James 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let's pray. Father, you are an infinitely wise God, and we desperately need your wisdom. This morning, we all come in here with hundreds of trials and challenges in our lives and the lives of those we love. And we confess, Father, that we don't know how to navigate them, We don't always know the right answer. We often hurt and we ache. Father, I pray for your wisdom for those among us this morning, for me, as we encounter trials. Lord, first of all, I pray that you would grant us grace to obey you and be faithful in our trials. Please give us wisdom to be faithful and obedient. I pray second, Father, that you would give us wisdom, that if it be your will and there's a way possible that we would be removed from the trial, that you would show us the way out. And I pray thirdly, Father, that if we are to remain in our trials, I pray you'd give us wisdom. I pray that you would teach us and mature us and that we would come out of the trials learning much, loving you more, and growing wiser. Oh, Father, you are filled with wisdom. And we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.